0: Hey everybody, welcome to a great episode of the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, D.C., oh wait, Pillar co-founder and uh, editor, Ed Condon, who lives in D.C., Uh, although you are not there now, Ed. You are, uh, insofar as I understand it, in Nueva, Jersey. Uh,
1: I am. I am in New Jersey. I am Struggling through one of your incredibly chewy local bagels uh, for <laughs> for breakfast. It's uh yeah, it's I am in New Jersey. I am for the weekend. We we missed Christmas effectively and the week after Christmas because of illness in the house. So we didn't get to see anyone, so we decided we'd try and come up this weekend just to see people and wave the baby around and and um and
0: we're finally recording the
1: podcast on what Saturday. Yeah nearly noon
0: <laughs> saturday at nearly noon this is the podcast that wasn't so this is our first episode this is our first episode of the pillar podcast of 2022 and you know normally we record the show on thursday and i was saying to you on thursday we really have to come out with a good punch and a good show and really come up come start with a bang of for the new year and uh, and then thursday afternoon we didn't have a show and uh we didn't have a show that that was i, I suppose my fault i don't know i uh Fault she is a strong her. word. You were not, you were not in the zone. I was not in the zone. We have had, um, uh, an insomniac child at our house this week. My, uh, my son, Max, um, periodically just goes through about a week of insomnia and Max has, this is Max's <laughs> insomnia week. So, um, there has not been any sleep at our house. So I just did not bring it on, uh, on, on Thursday. So then Friday we're like, well, we'll record Friday morning and then Friday morning. Um, I guess, again, my fault, although it wasn't, uh, my car got hit by a car. Um, which is to say that someone rear-ended me and uh, and it took, um, uh, which wasn't my fault, incidentally, but it took all morning to kind of work that out.
1: Now, like if it. I've understood American television commercials correctly, because you got rear-ended by the other guy and we're not at fault, you
0: now get his house. Is that, <laughs> that's how it works, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, that is exactly right. I get, I get everything. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know what I get. We, um, so look, regular listeners to the show will know that a couple of weeks ago, Um, my car was damaged in a windstorm and my door, um, I guess the only way to say it is damn near blew off. And, uh, and I I have to take it to a body shop and get it repaired. And I just haven't done that. Now, if the same car had been rear-ended and the entire kind of back half of the car cracked, crumpled and broken, you know, you might say like, well, time to call it a day with that car, but it was the other car and it was our minivan and not my little car that was rear-ended. So we, (laughs) what we now have at the Flynn house is two broken cars. Well, Uh I I'm sorry. My car works great. I made record time. You did. You drove from New Jersey yesterday in about like from Maryland in about five minutes. I I couldn't believe it.
1: I I covered 232 miles in less than three and a half hours.
0: Yeah, is that is that legal?
1: No, not even close to being legal. (laughs) Not even. But look, you know this as a native New Jerseyan. Like they have the the sort of New Jersey automotive equivalent of a stop and frisk policy is what the state troopers have up here in this state, as near as I can tell, which is they set the speed limit at an insane artificial low of 50 miles an hour on the turnpike. 55, 55, 55, whatever. And if you drive 75, people will angrily overtake you and gesticulate. You're going much too slow. Yeah. And as I've understood it, what the sort of social compact that has been agreed between drivers and law enforcement in the state of New Jersey is there is functionally no speed limit, but the police therefore have the right to pull over anyone they want and bust you at a moment's notice because
0: everyone is breaking the speed. Breaking, limit. Yeah, that is effectively true. The, the only people you really see get pulled over on the parkway are people who um, have out-of-state plates. We, <laughs> well, not only that, that, but also weaving through traffic very, very quick. I mean, people yes. weaving through traffic at 90 miles an hour are inevitably going to get pulled over on the parkway of the Turnpike. And the presumption is that they are trafficking narcotics through the Garden State, which the New Jersey State Troopers do not like. Uh, that that If they're doing that, that's bad. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, shouldn't, do that. you shouldn't do that. But no, the result was
1: there's a stretch of um, the New Jersey Turnpike that runs from the Delaware Bridge about 40 miles up where it's two lanes before it sort of mm-hmm. broadens out into the six lanes or whatever. I... I, I was averaging a speed in excess of eighty five miles an hour on that stretch. Wow. I You're mean it wouldn't
0: get pulled over as a trafficker. It was like. it well, it was open field running. I mean there were, I was the only car on the road. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really, it's an incredible feeling, isn't it? When you're basically the only car on a long stretch of highway. It was delightful. I, yeah. I, it was very relaxing and the car was moving fast enough and
1: it was dark enough that the wife and child fell asleep and you know, oh, yeah. no crazy. one could tell me, you know, you're going too fast. You shouldn't do this. This is illegal. You're going to no go to prison. No one
0: tell us no or where to go. We're or say we're only dreaming. That's what I did there. Say we've been speeding. I did. Oh, good. So you're waving the baby around. And, um, and so, so to conclude, so, so, okay. So that was sort of strike one and strike two of the show. And then um, strike three this morning, we started up and um, none of my equipment worked. None of your equipment worked. (laughs) So I really thought that we were going to have a, I really thought we were going to just have to call it. I thought that if, if we didn't figure out that equipment thing quickly, we would just have to decide that this show was ill-fated and cursed and shouldn't happen. And we should just put it in the trash can and walk away and try again next week.
1: What I found amusing about the entire thing, I still find amusing, is that the entire reason we didn't record on Thursday afternoon is this is our one year anniversary episode beginning of year two, and it is very important. Uh, apparently
0: <laughs> I don't know that, that, I just
1: came to believe that we way. start with a strong punch and you know, start as you mean to go on, begin the second year with a bang and you know, high energy and everything else and um, if, if all I can say is if this episode, uh, is, is totemic of what is to come for the rest of you two of the pillar, we are yeah. screwed. Sure.
0: This really is going to be you, a hard year. I really wish you hadn't said that. I don't, I don't know why you would say that out loud, actually. Um, because I'm a, I'm a pessimist, JD i know i know half of life nice. is anticipation and the other half is disappointment i <laughs> oh man oh man i know that you believe that um but on the whole before we sort of get into it um i just want to hear about your um we took the octave of christmas off and then we now we're back and we're recording a show and i just want to hear about how your your christmas christmas was
1: it was horrible okay we we effectively missed christmas i mean I, you know we didn't miss the going to mass when it was a day of obligation, but otherwise Christmas was a total, total frost in our house. Um, mm-hmm. Someone from Christmas day onwards was extremely unwell at all times. And we just kind of passed it around the three of us and felt horrible. We went nowhere. We saw no one. We did nothing. Um, I had laid in a, a lot of beef and a goose mm-hmm. for the octave, uh, a lot of booze um i was ready to make some serious merry, and and very little merry was made that's all i can say it was pretty gross um i ended up being extremely grateful we took the octave off because i would not have been able to work for much of it anyway i was i was unwell yeah so no it wasn't great but i'm i'm
0: assuming jd that your christmas was sufficiently hotly jolly for the both of us oh it was awesome it was awesome it was it was awesome thanks for asking um yeah, we we. No, I just uh, said I assumed. I didn't say I wanted to hear <laughs> enough to say yes. <laughs> it was great to take the octave off and just spend time with uh, family and with the kids, and with you know kind of a low key sort of um, Christmas uh, you know day and 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 things with family. Well, actually, we had a great um, we had a we had a great sort of Christmas Eve dinner before we went to mass on Christmas Eve, and um and we had with uh, family and friends at the table and. Then we went to mass uh, on Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day, you know, do the morning with the kids, and then, um, then spent the afternoon at my sister's house. Having my my uh, sister, you know, we're 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 New Jersey, we're the the classic New Jersey mutt that we're sort of, um, as is a huge swath of sort of New Jersey's population, we're sort of I- Irish Italian, um, mix. And, um, my dad always told us that the that the, um, the green chromosome, the the Irish chromosome, you know, sort of overpowers all. I you know, green chromosome uber alles as it were. And so the only thing that counts, you know, if, if you have some Irish ethnicity is the Irish ethnicity because it has the ability to sort of convert or or um, or, or overpower all. So um so we, we we tend to think of ourselves much more sort of uh, ethnically Irish American than Italian American. But my sister's married to a very sort of Italian guy, and so she made a very question big Yes. When you say Italian, do you actually mean Italian No, or... a very Italian American guy? Okay. Family. And uh and so she made a big Italian American fest uh you know um meal for uh for Christmas day which was which was fantastic. Some lasagna Fish and, and pasta and, and... No, Italian American. Uh some lasagnas and stuffed oh. shells and uh sausage and peppers and meatballs and very many All those Christmas <laughs> favorites. All those Christmas favorites. It was fantastic. And then, you know, hanging out with the kids for the octave and eating leftovers and playing games. And then um, my son, Max, uh, I don't know how much detail I should be going into here. I don't know how much people really care about my Christmas, but my son, Max, um, for the whole of Advent, my son, Max, had been asking us every day, mom, dad, Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve. And we thought that Christmas Eve was something that he like, we didn't understand what he was asking for. Now you might've thought, well, he was asking for Christmas Eve, but that seemed less likely to us than that. He was asking for some sort of a song about Christmas Eve or some activity that we'd done last Christmas Eve, the or night something. before Christmas or something. Right. Exactly. So we're the whole of Advent. We're trying to figure out what is Christmas Eve? What is this kid asking for? Mom, dad, Christmas Eve. So um, a, a day or two after Christmas, you know, he asked us, um, you know, a day or two after Christmas day. So in the Christmas, act, he asked us like mom, dad, Christmas Eve. And so I said to him, Maxie, what is Christmas Eve? And um, he acted it out, you know, Maxie has a limited amount of words. So he acted out, he acted out going to sleep and waking up and opening up presents. And we realized he'd actually been asking for Christmas Eve the whole time, the, the Christmas Eve of Christmas Eve, <laughs> and, <laughs> which I don't know why it hadn't occurred to us. So we decided, we told him we could have another Christmas Eve. We decided we'd do sort of another round of presents under the tree for um, for the epiphany. So we we did that just the other day. And that was very nice. And uh, yeah, so doing good kind of towards the end. We had some uh, refugees from the Marshall fire. You know, there's a huge fire in in Colorado's history just the other um, day or whatever. I don't know. We had some refugees from the Marshall fire with us. And that was, um, you know, they didn't lose their home. Thanks to God, but they were evacuated. And, uh, and then uh, a, a good friend of ours uh, lost his son. Um, A a good friend of ours, a friend of the show friend of the pillar lost his, lost his son uh, who was nine years old and had a, a very serious disability and, and not uh, in the fire for the purposes. Of- no, not in the fire. I'm so sorry, sorry. Not not in the fire. Just at the same time, there was a lot of things going on actually uh, at the same time. And, uh, and, and uh, and that friend and his family have been like really powerful, I think and incredible witnesses of kind of um, hope and grieving and um, uh, a Christian perspective on grief because, you know, losing a child, you know, I think there's very little that's, that's, um, worse than that. And, um, you know, you sort of think of it as that as one of those sort of cataclysmic things. And, um, and the witness of this family has been, you know, a sincere, um, um, earnest and unshaking belief in the resurrection. And that, that has, I think, shaped their perspective in a very beautiful way. So that's kind of been some of the things that we've been. It's, and I mean, the, that particular family, their
1: the way that they have been speaking about their experience, I think has been incredibly moving and incredibly powerful and also incredibly timely because, I mean, it happened at the same time that there was all of this press coverage of um you know the 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 sort of fashion for testing um oh you know, yeah, in, yeah in in yeah. fetal testing for um abnormalities and things like that and you know the sort of there was a lot of public debate about, you know, why would you why would you test for this? How accurate is it? You know, the the entire
0: Yeah, there was a big the entire dignity
1: of children yeah. born um at the, at that time was, you know, was up for discussion. It was just an incredibly powerful witness that all the whole family was giving.
0: Yeah. And I think we'll continue, continue to give. So, um, so I went to the funeral of the um, of their, their son, Michael yesterday. And um, uh, it was, uh, you know, first of all, it was a full, full church, which is a beautiful thing to see, um, you know, families kind of showing up to support a family who's lost a child. In. And, um, and, and uh, the priest who I found out listens to the show Preached, I think, beautifully on um, on on precisely that on sort of the dignity of of uh, suffering and co- cooperation and unification with the cross, and uh, and um, and it was a very uh, you know it was a very beautiful um, uh, beautiful thing in 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 the context of of course extraordinary tragedy. Phil, you know what I want to talk about today. I don't know. I was just wondering how you're going to possibly transition from something (laughs) as serious. as I'm just going to pause because there's no other kind of transition. Transition. (laughs) Bam. Um, Moving on. You know what I want to talk about today, Ed? And I didn't tell you what I want to talk about today. So this will come. So you're you're getting this along with everyone else. But I woke up this morning thinking about what we should talk about today. And it's this. This is um, 2022, as you probably have realized, Ed, is the 60th anniversary of the opening of Vatican Council II. Yes, I was aware of that. Yeah, so this is kind of a significant sort of year in the life of the church in, in that... Um, it was you know, an important step in the issuing of the 1983 Code of Canon Law. I will grant you that. <laughs> well, I it was an important step in the issuing of the 19... The, the Second Vatican Council was indeed an important step in the issuing of the 1983 Code of Canon Law. But but in and of itself and by itself, it also was a, a moment of some significance in the life of the church. And, um, and, and now we are 60 years sort of from it. And um, and I think as may be sort of historically, you know, consistent, um, we are uh, we're 60 years from an ecumenical council, a major, major, major event in the life of the church, and there's still a lot of discussion um, going on in in the church at many many levels, sort of about what Vatican Council II meant, um, whether it accomplished those things, whether it has been uh, a faithfully and um, meaningfully understood and interpreted and kind of actualized in the life of the church. And then, I mean, to sort of my, not my surprise, I guess, but, you know, to to a certain degree, like um, to to show the range of the discussion over the past year, the conversation about Vatican Council II has intensified at least sort of in some corners of the church, because you've had sort of bishops, um, not sort of diocesan bishops, but um, bishops uh, start to say, "Well, you know, there were real problems in Vatican Council II, and they need to either be corrected by the Roman Pontiff or the, the aspects of the council need to, to be clear." Received. When they say there were real problems in Vatican II, they don't mean the way people were dressed; they mean in the
1: documents. No, they mean the Second documents.
0: Vatican. I mean, so so in the
1: so, in the official promulgated documents of an ecumenical
0: council of the yeah, church. Yeah, so so Archbishop, I mean, so you know, Archbishop Vigano is a person that we talk about on this show from time to time, and and for me, kind of one of the most like. Um, Strange iterations of the Vigano sort of timeline is that over the past year, you've had Archbishop Vigano and people like Bishop Athanasius Schneider begin to say, Well, you know, there were there are effectively um, seminal heresies in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, and therefore they need to be either rescinded or corrected because they are they contain sort of latently. It's not just a problem with the implementation that we've seen problems since Vatican II, but the documents themselves contain sort of latently. Um, uh, um, you know things which are heretical and uh, and that's a very serious thing to say and and in to my mind it's actually uh, the argue. most striking sort of part of the entire Viganò timeline as it were
1: I was about to say I I would you say it's a serious thing to say I would say it's a criminal thing to say well um, I think in the church's law it is indeed a criminal thing to it say it is a criminal uh, thing to say you know, um and it's very interesting in, as you say in the Viganò timeline because I I mean I met Archbishop Viganò more than a few times and had more than a few conversations with him when he was the nuncio I
0: was talking to, to the in, in washington dc was, we would before um, he was sort of v for vigano he was a guy with a job and he was a guy with a job who did the job reasonably well and you know if you live in washington
1: dc and you work in our sort of sphere it's not unusual to find yourself in the same place at the same time as the nuncio and i, I think it would be fair to say that the the current occupant of that position is a little cool on us uh so he's
0: Oh, the current Apostolic Nuncio is yeah. not a pillar subscriber. I think he's probably a pillar reader, but I don't know if he listens.
1: I to don't think show. he is a pillar reader. I think he'd like us a lot more <laughs> if he actually read what we write. I think he's, I think well, the current Apostolic to... Nuncio perhaps um, has has judged us without sight.
0: I well, think. that may well be, but anyway. But that's th- th- neither here nor there.
1: Other other
0: occupants We think, that position. What's funny been, is actually like, um, every time. I think he's really uh, good. That's the every time Archbishop thing. Pierre, the current Apostolic Nuncio of the United States gives a speech, you and I are both like. Damn, that was one hell of a speech. That was great. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but I'm I don't think sure. I've ever written anything other than like incredibly effusive praise of the things um, he says. He says, yeah, I'm not sure. Now, there are questions, I think, about his, uh, you know, administration and governance uh, or his role in the church's administration and governance, as there are for sure near everyone. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that it's a mutual admiration society between the pillar and uh and and the apostolic nuncio in that while we like However, is the same. Mr. When yeah. I getting back to the original thread, when I when well, I, I want to talk about that note. I know. Well we can if you
1: want. I just I hate leaving it it I hate leaving sentences open. I have to close it. Oh, I, know. You, I you have watch. to close the parenthetical comma. Um when Vigano was the apostolic nuncio and I would have conversations with him in a in an informal and social way. Uh, it was not my impression at the time that he was a Vatican II refusenik or skeptic. Uh, on the contrary, he seemed a a perfectly a ordinary council, yeah. a perfectly ordinary man of the council, uh, exactly what you'd expect of a JP two Archbishop, effectively. Right, exactly. That's the best way to say it. Yeah, that's, the, that's the best way. Uh, and uh, he has. Um,
0: his views appear to have changed over the last 18 months. Well, on the whole, the views of Archbishop, Vigano appear to have changed rather dramatically over the last 18 months. Um, And we could probably do a whole thing about that. But one element of that is this, um, is this, uh, um, you know, writing things, which are sort of uh, lay into criticism of the second Vatican council and suggest that the documents are highly problematic. And so there's been, I think some essays published back and forth between, Viganò you know, and an auxiliary bishop in Kazakhstan named Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who has similar cri- kind of criticisms. And, and 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 the only reason I bring that out is to show sort of the breadth of um, divergent perspectives on the Second Vatican Council six years after its um, after its beginning. And um and uh and a great deal of the sort of breadth of perspectives on the Second Vatican Council because I don't just want to pick on Viganò. There are also a great many people you know who um, who regularly sort of represent themselves as. Um, Spokespersons of the council are formed by the Second Vatican Council, whose viewpoints don't really reflect it at all, right? Who yes. would have opinions kind of about the role, the life of the church, and the uh, sort of the mission of the church in the world, um, the way in which the church engages with the world, the notion of the universal call to holiness, the, the church's um, call to sacred worship, which do not, um, it, it, which do not reflect the actual texts of of, uh, of the Second Vatican Council. Don't come close to it. Uh, may I? May I offer an unpopular opinion? Surely. I,
1: actually, I don't know if it's an unpopular opinion. I've never expressed it in public before. Um, I saw on, I guess it was probably on the Twitters, uh, someone say to the, say, as a, in response to something we published, uh, that, you know, they often hear, as and we often say, you know, it's going to take a long time for the full effects of the Second Vatican Council to shake out and come in, you know, after an ecumenical council. It takes a century to you know, fully integrated into the life of the church and everything. And the person basically said something the effect of, I'm tired of hearing this. Why on earth should it take 60 plus years for the church to come to grips with its own documents? And okay, I understand that. Um, I would say that in, in the sort of general course of human affairs, uh, it takes a long time for major events to to fully be absorbed by the people they affect and you know, the, the sort of Old historian joke is, you know, what was the effect of the French Revolution? It's too soon to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. But <laughs> indeed, aren't historians total cut ups? Um, anyway, I, but what I would say about the Second Vatican Council is this I do think it's going to take another 25 years at least before we start having a, a fully formed uh, and adult conversation about how. The documents of the council have been incorporated and should be incorporated and lived in the life of the church. And it is for this reason, the spirit of the council has to die. And by me saying the spirit of the council has to die, I mean, everyone who was there or alive or has a living memory of the council has to die before we can have a real conversation about it. Because um, if our interpretation of the council and its importance in the life of the church and sort of settled historical reality is dependent on living memory and oh, well, I was there and I heard this guy say it in this tone of voice. And well, exactly. what you don't know is behind the scenes,
0: we were right. all saying none of that matters. Magisterial texts have to be internally consistent. They can't be dependent upon memory or experience. Well, they story. can't be dependent
1: on a Gnostic interpretation right. of, I, yeah. I know the real meaning of this sentence, because I was there when we
0: argued over the comma. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I, the, text actually, the, counsel, the text of the council, the text of the council. Let me go back. I do not want to say that mag- magisterial texts have, have to be internally consistent um, because that's subject to misinterpretation. Um, magisterial texts have to be um, uh, uh, interpreted as a part of sort of an ongoing sort of de- development of um, the articulation of the deposit of faith, which is the teachings of the church in continuity with those things which have come before. So not sort of that they stand all alone without being read in the context of other things. but m- what i mean to say is much is, is was much better articulated by you. Magisterial texts can't be dependent upon some sort of um, gnostic understanding of winks and nods that were going on at the time that thing was. Right. And that's and I, not reasonable at all.
1: Yeah. And uh, and again, I don't know if this is going to be a popular opinion or not, but it is my settled opinion, is that the, the bulk of the argumentation over Vatican Council II continues to center around people who claim a, a superior or secret understanding of what the council was really about, separate to what the council actually did and wrote and promulgated. And basically until that's gone until that's off the table I don't think we will be able to appreciate
0: the council on its own merits right um, I'm glad you say that because I wanted to talk about what the Second Vatican Council really was for and um, and then I do think you know there can be I think you're absolutely right you know the thing has to be considered in um, the, the the documents of the Second Vatican Council have to be considered sort of in their own light and um, and and in continuity with the teachings of the church and not sort of in a way that um people are aware of kind of people are sort of judging it based upon how what was said in committee meetings or or even like you know oh well
1: you don't understand what the church
0: was like at the time and you know
1: i was you know i was just i was in seminary while the council was going on you don't understand
0: energy a tremendous energy we really believe that yeah no
1: yeah i i know that you felt that father but actually that was indigestion and if you take two renee it'll (laughs) you know it'll settle down and it'll be fine
0: right yeah Mm mm-hmm um, the greatest concern of the Ecumenical Council is this, John XXIII said when he opened the council in 1962, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. That doctrine embraces the whole of man, composed as he is of body and soul, and since he is uh, a pilgrim on this earth, it commands him to tend always toward heaven. The greatest concern of the Ecumenical Council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. In a certain way, that seems to me to be the criteria by which um, the Second Vatican Council can or ought to be sort of judged in the life of the Church. Has the deposit of faith been guarded um, and taught more efficaciously? But even that, it does not seem to me, as something which um, can be uh, judged in the immediacy of the thing. Because if you if you if you judge it too close to the thing, you say, well, there's sort of a um, you know, between the between the Second Vatican Council and now, there is. Um, arguably a great decline in sort of mass attendance globally, or at least in the West, um, a a great deal more sort of confusion about what the church teaches or rejection of what the church teaches or both confusion and rejection of what the church teaches, um, sort of general decrease in religiosity. It would be fair to say those things, but um, it would be unfair, I think, to sort of attribute those things to the council without sort of looking at the broader sort of context of what has happened since the mid 1960s with well, the sexual also, revolution and, and, and broad clear, institutional disaviliation and these kinds of things. Well,
1: and well, even that is to, st- even that is to be almost too modern and too relative about the, the perspective um, mo- there, there's a, there's a fashion ironically amongst modern historians who style themselves theologians to, uh, to understand the council as a sort of um, church, the church consciously and deliberately sort of turning away from a model it had that, it decided right. it wanted to change something different. And that's not what happened. The, the, the Second Vatican Council was over. And then, you know, this sort of, and it became part of and imbued the zeitgeist of the 60s and 70s in which it was taking place. And that all this, this is a complete misunderstanding and misreading of history. That the Second Vatican Council was, if any, was absolutely reactive. And that's if you what want I'm trying to
0: say. That's what I'm trying to say.
1: If, you want to, if you want to level a, a real criticism of the Second Vatican Council, I would say the most important one is it w- it arguably came too late. Um, That the real reaction, the Second Vatican Council was primarily held and instigated in response to the fallout of the Second World War. That's Mm -hmm. what it was about. Right. The the Second Vatican Council was responding to all of these things you're talking about: secularization, a loss of religiosity, declining mass attendance, loss of popular piety, um, you know, a degeneration of uh, you know sort of societal mores and morals. All of these things, but these were the results of a global globally traumatized generation who saw not just war but genocide
0: right and what and was left wondering where was god in the gas chambers and, and th- often the response was to, to 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 tend towards materiality yes well it was you to offer this sort of it was to offer the great
1: heresies of you know for example the soviet union everything is to say that we have to have a technocratic humanistic answer to this that we have seen that man is a monster so man's human nature has to be tamed by
0: man that's no less true in the west actually it's absolutely true in the, the West. The Technocratic it, it, response is different. In, in exactly.
1: West. No, it's the same thing. The Soviet Union was just one side of the same. That we did the right. same thing in the West. That right. that was you know we did we did absolutely the same thing. Only we said everyone is we invented the suburbs. That was right. our
0: exactly right. So how do we tame this monster? Levittown and yeah. um, and comfort and um, sort of a set of a set of, uh, a set of um, things which are not sort of spoken of in polite society, which is fundamentally about. Kind of uh, prosperity, right? Shared yeah. material prosperity, right? Exactly. No, if if anything, I I wish the Second
1: Vatican Council had opened in nineteen fifty two. Mm. I, you know, that that I think it would have been the council happening in real time, uh, with the things to which it was responding. So. Uh, we have to bear in mind that, you know, all of the things that we often attribute to in the, you
0: know, in the fallout of the council, people stopped going to mass. We have to bear in mind, those are the things which were, which the council was anticipating or seeing already seminally and responding to not the consequence of not, it can't be demonstrated that those things are the, 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 on the contrary, it can be demonstrated that the graph was pointed one direction before the council was over. What you could do is, I mean, if you wanted to say, look, at the same time, um, there are um, there are people who uh, look the sort of um, bad implementation of the council, if you will, or sort of bad pastoral practice in the name of implementation of the council. Sure. May well have accelerated. The Absolutely. Happening, um, you know, but but again, I don't think that you can say that the catechetical crisis in this country of the 1970s, 1980s uh, um, wasn't already didn't seminally exist and it wasn't the aim of the council to respond to it. Absolutely. and the things that and when we talk about the sort of quote unquote spirit
1: of Vatican II and the sort of bad application or deliberate warping or ignoring of the texts of Vatican II to serve a, a social and ecclesiological agenda that was actually absent from the texts of the council itself, um, when we're talking about that, that, that itself, those people who have done that and who made that their agenda and wanted to turn the council towards that, regardless of what it said, they themselves are a product of a society that was happening in and out of the church prior to the opening of the second vatican council that attitude wasn't created by the council right. that was something that was there and they you know the people who want the people who want the church to be an ngo the people who want the church to be more secular the people who want the church to be more humanistic who want the church to have much less a focus on evangelization or catechetics or you know uh, love and appreciation of the divine that has been present in the church for the whole of the 20th century um And, you know, it will, and that attitude, you know, exists always in the church and it will turn whatever is going on in the church to that end if it can, you know, that this is, we had, you know, under the, under the most tratty, whatever paradise pontificates of the church of the 19th century, you had the modernists, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not that none of this is attributable to
0: or unique to the second Vatican council. This is just the
1: times that were lived through in
0: that period. Well, and here's, so here's what I want to talk about. I think all of that is true. And all of that is um, prologue to something I want you to speculate about. And I, because, because I don't have a good speculation, about it. I love speculating. Good. Um, I would have, there was a time when I would have said, okay, there is rather clearly um, a, a, um, a broad agreement. And if not to sort of broad agreement among um, theologians and people in pastoral ministry and things like this, at the very least have magisterially indicated mode of interpreting the second Vatican council um, that will sort of carry us through from here. And I, I would have said at the end of the Benedict papacy, I would have said it is sort of rather clearly um, the case that um, what we might call sort of the communio schools mode of interpreting the second the hermeneutic of continuity. Yeah. The hermeneutic of continuity, all of the things which which that phrase is taken to represent, which also I think means sort of reading um, uh, uh Lumen Gentium as a sort of the sort of cornerstone text of the council, and, um, and and reading other documents sort of in a certain way through that, um, I, I would have said at the very least there is seems to be a a, a magic at this point sort of a corpus of magisterial texts um, on, on any number of issues on 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 scripture on liturgy um, you know on the church's sort of engagement in the modern world that all are sort of going in the same direction, reading the second Vatican council in the same kind of way. Um, and that seems to be a sort of de- de- resolved kind of question. N- now I would say that's not true. I-, I would say in a certain way, there's a re um, maybe, I can't remember if we've talked about this on the show before, but we're talking about it now that there's a sort of relitigation of kind of what the second Vatican council means or more frequently competing voices about what the second Vatican council means or how to read it or how to understand it. Um, and uh, and so um, we're saying, I think, in agreement. You know, you, you need time before the te- before the council kind of stands on its own instead of stands in the histor- you know in in the um, uh, in the read through the experience of the people who are there with their own interpretive lenses. These kinds of things. Um, but what it- what do you think the next sort of twenty years, let's say, of sort of reading the council and thinking about how the council um, um, fits into the um, broader uh, doctrinal teaching of the church and and uh, and pastoral practice and thinking of the church and then um, sort of guides the church what what do you think that looks like or how do you think that plays out
1: I, i think that we will see the next 20 years will be if you like the capstone on the period following the second vatican council that um 20 years from now let's say when we approaching the year 2050 you know, when when the church starts to think about the centenary of the Second Vatican Council, we will see that it is it is settled, that the the debate has stopped, that there is an understanding of the Second Vatican Council in the church that is commensurate with the church's understanding of Vatican I 100 years after it occurred, you know, that it had shaken out into the life of the church and been absorbed in everything. I think in the next 20 years, what we will see is there will be, I think... And I think this is part and parcel of, of what I was saying earlier, that as you see the generation that had, um, that's, that's experience and understanding of the council is very personalistic, um, very individual, very relative, uh, to time, place and experience. I think as that generation dies off, you will see a sort of spike in, in renewal and debate about, you know, what does the council really mean? What was it really for? All that sort of stuff, which we're starting to see now. But I think the two are tracking each other. I think that as, as you are seeing the generation that had a lived experience of the council, and I don't just mean people who were in the room. I mean people
0: who were seminarians, priests, religious sisters, whatever. People who talk about the spirit of the council as if that's, th- you know, a thing that, that feels meaningful to them. Yes, well,
1: people who talk about the spirit of the council as if there was a sort of universal um, experience, you know, mystical experience, just by being Catholic in the 1960s, that pointed the church in one particular direction with one particular slate of you know to dos coming out of the council, which is just not true. But I think, um, I, I think the sort of uptick in debate and sort of the reopening of these questions and the relitigation or attempted relitigation of all of these things, which was just settled. Magister, papal magisterium from Paul VI to Jamie II to Benedict XVI, um, I, I think that is a, that is a demographic phenomenon primarily, that um, I think people who uh, did not see their interpretation of the council brought to bear uh, in the papal magisterium of three popes are, and are now seeing that their vision of what the council secretly actually was all about is going to pass out of living memory and experience um, they are behaving like to use a phrase, old men in a hurry. Mm. And I think that, you know, yeah, there is going to be this sort of fever spike of, you know, relitigating the debates of the 1970s all over again, but I think it will be a fairly um, I think it'll be a fairly acute, but short-lived fever in the intellectual life of the church. And then it will, it will pass Mm. in the next 20
0: years. Well, I, I wonder about that and here's why. Um, you mentioned Vatican Council I and um, it seems to me that frankly we're still trying to grapple with the meaning of some aspects of Vatican Council I. So one of the things that happens in Vatican Council I, it's interesting because maybe it tracks um, what was happening in Europe in a certain way, right? Um, the unification of Italy I mean the, the unification of Italy and sort of things. but one of the things you see happening in Vatican Council I, is um, uh, a, a centralization of sort of um, executive authority in the church. So you have a de- you have a declaration of infallibility, which I think is a true thing, which the church held doctrinally already, and this is de- declared and defined. But then, um, in the way in which the articulation of the primacy of the pope jurisdictionally in the life of the church um, happens, and then what happens subsequent to that, the 17 Code, which is a sort of universalized codification of the church's law, in which the pope. Is, is, is more sort of demonstrably at the center than might be said in the sort of corpus period of canon law, which preceded it, which is to say the entire history of the church before that. Um, it, you see a new um, sense of the papacy, and perhaps it's because of the loss of the papal states that there's a sort of new sort of centralization of the papacy sort of um, governance function vis-a-vis. I it's possible. It was also, bear in mind, it was the age of empire.
1: Uh, yeah right. Okay. Nineteenth so
0: century that's what... was the age of
1: the great empires, be it right. the Austro-Hungarian, the British Empire. That you know, this is right. this was the era in which
0: the world was run from three cities. And so now you see the church now run. I mean, in the 17th code, which I think is coming out of this articulation papal primacy in, in Vatican I, you now see this way in which the church is more sort of run from a city, Rome. And in the
1: 83- And code, it run think, along yeah. imperial lines, that the 1917 code was a very conscious aping of the Napoleonic
0: code. Right, right. and uh, Right, exa- exactly, right. In the 83 code, I think you see um, an effort to be to make a corrective there, which is to say mm-hmm. that diocesan bishops are far more empowered than the 1983 code. But what actually happens as a result of, I think, the ecclesiology engendered by the 17 code and maybe Vatican I is that the bishops don't do the thing. They keep yes. looking to Rome to, to to do to do the things, right? So bishops have... The 83 code says, hey, you're successors to the apostles and you lead a particular church and the bishops, you know, what, what Francis calls this out last year with the promulgation of the new book six, he says the bishops kind of keep looking to Rome to tell them what to do um, in ways that the 83 code suggests they shouldn't, or um, the, the the document on bishops in the second United council says they shouldn't. So um, it seems to me we're still working out where the balance is in, you know, in a practical way and then kind of where the truth is about what papal primacy means vis-a-vis our theology of bishops um and, and subsidiarity is an extremely problematic um
1: philosophy to live yeah it because it requires um it, it ironically it requires now th- now, th- now i'm about to get really unpopular um <laughs> what a proper legal subsidiarity in the life of the church is envisaged by I would argue the documents of Vatican II or the 1983 code of canon law requires an ecclesiology of true unity and requires a real communion um, yes. among the bishops, which we don't have. I would say either let, nationally, let alone globally mm-hmm. that there is not this one. It's because we have not yet caught up with um the intention of having this kind of subsidiarity that we, we are still looking for um, the reference between the church in one continent and another continent to run through Rome that, you know, there's always a layover in Rome and that the idea that you can have sort of lateral communion uh, is still a tricky concept to grasp because we're just not used to having that interconnected world, even though we do now. Um, So we're still sort of learning the motor skills of a global church that is actually interconnected. Properly, so there's that, um, and and part of the other problem is the sen- the spiritual sense of communion, a true ecclesiology of communion, which is uh, which is an emotional as much as intellectual state of being, um, atrophies if you have a, a legal centrality that you lean on that that it you know you lose the muscle memory of reflexive spiritual communion, if you can rely on administrative communion for everything. Mm-hmm. right? And we have not built that muscle back up. Uh, and what I was going to say that I think might perhaps be unpopular is that actually what you need, if you want to sort of really train those muscles of ecclesiological communion back up is what you need is synods. Mm-hmm. Hmm you, you know, that's how you do it. And, you know, the idea that, you know, and, and again, I, no one has been a bigger jerk about the synod and synodality than me. That's true. I, I will, I will willingly own that, but I have not ever said the entire premise is stupid and I don't think the premise is stupid. And the idea that you have um, a sort of global synodal process without a clear agenda, but purely for the learning exercise of we have to learn to do this again and to foster the sort of spirit of communion within the church at at the level of both the global church and the local church is a real thing. Now, I think the way it's been set up is naive. I think that the process is absolutely key to be hijacked by sort of, you know, Professional lobbyists and everything else, and I, I do, I think all of those things and all those parts, but it doesn't touch um, the central validity of the idea,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which I, with which I do agree.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Um, do you? At the same time, um, we have the experience of the um, youth synod, the Amazonian synod, and the. Well, first, um, well, I, I can I can tell you what was wrong with all of those things. If well, you like, well, that's what I want to talk about.
1: Okay. Well, what was wrong with the youth synod was a number of things. Um, what was wrong with the Amazon synod was it purported to be a synod for a particular region, listening to the experiences of that region, and what it actually was was a you know this content paid and brought to you by the German Church. Right. Exactly. Um, it was yeah. you know. Half of the half of the participants were on the panels that were put up by the by the synodal process itself, and you know yeah, we were there. We sat through
0: the Amazonian, yeah.
1: yeah, Most of them were German, and the ones that weren't German were just Marxists. And, you know, there was there were very few actual Amazonian Catholics there, and the ones who they did allow to come and did allow
0: to speak were giving very powerful experiences most they, of the time. They were, and you know, it was funny because it was true that the, that the that the, that a great many of the synodal participants were um, Europeans, Germans, or um, you know, or or otherwise. And so there was this group of Amazonian um, Catholics, there were Amazonian bishops who were in the synod and Amazonian lay people who were part of the synod too. Um, But but then there was a group of sort of Amazonian Catholics who were there to do um, things, right. Who were doing spiritual things in the, in, you know, outside of the synod, they were having kind of prayer sessions and these kinds of things at Transpontina and other churches. And it became sort of like this performative thing of the, Amazonians outside of the thing while the meeting was going on full of, um, you know, you know, full of uh, German cash effectively. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very odd odd juxtaposition. Yeah. So I, I don't know
1: that I would, um, I don't know that I would recognize a spirit of true synodality in the Amazonian synod as I saw it and experienced it when I was in Rome. I would say that
0: was more like a sponsored conference. Um, And the other thing was that there was a great deal of um, uh, pressure put upon the synod, Or this much of
1: you had German bishops saying, German bishops, not bishops who happen to be German, bishops of German dioceses saying the Amazonian synod must lead to a dispensation from priestly celibacy for the Amazon, which I will then apply to my diocese immediately before our needs are the same
0: as theirs. So it was read through an agenda. I mean, it was read through a preconceived agenda, which actually is um, contrary to the notion of synodality, which is indeed interestingly that we both I think have warmed up to over the past here two years or something like that yeah um yeah okay so uh so so yeah so that's what was wrong with the amazonian synod and i think you could talk through what was wrong with the family synod and the way in which a sort of uh, neurologic's Set of issues and and voices predominated that, and you had actual overt kind of racism coming out of the mouths of. I mean, in a tragic way, you had actual overt kind of racism coming out of the mouths of some synod participants who who skewed the notion that they would listen to the African bishops who were there, and um, it was explicit and more than, on more than one occasion. You had
1: and just in case people think that we're just sort of generalizing, no. During the during the uh, sessions of the synod on the family, Cardinal Casper said the Africans should not think to lecture
0: us. Right now and I think, he, with their silly I, little cultural taboos about sexuality and things like that i think he eventually apologized but i mean that's what he, he did but
1: only right after now. he denied he said it and then a right. recording was produced of him saying and he right. said well yes i did say it and they you know they shouldn't lecture us but sorry. all right fine. if i've offended anyone i'm sorry right, right. the marriage apology i'm sorry if you're offended um, yeah exactly so there's that and then also um the drafting committee for the final synodal document included uh you know as it does people elected to participate in it, cardinals from around the world, two of which were Cardinal Wilford Napier-Fox of, South Af- of Durban, South Africa, and Cardinal Worrell of Washington. And during the drafting process, Cardinal World said, Cardinal Napier was there saying, no, this language is unacceptable.
0: This is not representative of the church teaching, and it it's not representative of what the synod here's, fathers here's here have I'm said. About it. Here's but, what I'm concerned about. It seems to me that, to paraphrase, to paraphrase Chesterton, you and I are sort of saying, Um, The synodal ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. You know, all all of these expressions of synodality have not been. And, uh, you know, no true expression of synodality would be X, Y, or Z. What I'm concerned about is, although I agree with you that that is a way of um, reestablishing certain balances, I think, which need to be established. And I I think even helping bishops to better own their identity as successors of the apostles um, and the meaning of that, which, you know, one place where we can really look to the meaning of that um is uh, is the council of jerusalem which is an important i think template for certain aspects of episcopal communion um but w- what we're sort of saying is yeah they're not getting it they're, they haven't gotten it they haven't gotten it they haven't gotten it is there any reason to think that they would or that we would keep doing synods and they would get better i am edified by the synodality at the at the bishops conference i mean I, people you might think that i'm naive about that but i'm edified by um what bishops said to us after the meeting of the bishops conference in november when they said look Um, we had more opportunity to weigh in before, um, lots of guys felt that they had been heard as a consequence of before we sort of depoliticized it by talking more, praying more, and then having some more closer conversations. Now, um, there are, I do not think that that is entirely spin. I think there are aspects of it, which might be spin. And I think there are aspects of it in which people said, let's circle the wagon and stop fighting in front of the kids. But I also think the principles are sound that, um, more conversation, more rooted in prayer is a better way of governing than not. Um, so I see sort of directionally that there's ways in which maybe this is happening, but um, is the conference a more likely pl- sort of place for incidentality to be expressed than Rome?
1: Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, and it, it, let me explain what I mean by that. I think that uh, because the U S has had in the last two years, more or less three years since McCarrick, let's say um, a particularly acute period that they've had to go through and they've had some very yeah yeah. and they've had some um they've had a lot of uh conflict and suffering and strife internally and externally
0: Mm -hmm.
1: i think that has been um i think that 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 has been a, a schooling time for them that they have you know they have learned through things like the retreat they were ordered to go on this time last year i think by Pope no uh twenty nineteen two years ago yeah. Yeah, two years ago uh by Pope Francis. and they're gonna, you know they're scheduled to have another sort of retreat week instead of a business meeting in june um i I think they've been they've been learning these things that we're talking about this sort of synodal spirit um in you know in a in a sort of crucible period of time. And I don't know that that has been the experience of, for example, the permanent secretariat of the Synod of Bishops in yeah. Rome. Right. And this is, you know, I think, you know, to, to go back to what you said about, you know, okay, I'm saying the, the Synod and Synodality and the concept of Synodality is wonderful, but, you know, it's, it's doomed to failure because nobody ever does it right. Um, I, I guess it's one of those things that you can't force the issue. I think it has to happen organically, and we have to sort of uh, grow towards. You know, it's re- you know, like I said, it's it's relearning muscle memory, it's rebuilding um, a, a a motor skill that the church I think lost over a period of a century, give or take, through all of the sort of historical context that we were talking about you know the age of the age of empire that there was an age of great centrality and unified law and you know the, the the church in in a way has always adapted her governing structures to reflect those of the period of history in which she's living and the church is now you know still reinventing and relearning how she wants to structure herself in in a modern interconnected world and i think it's fine i, do, I don't know that you can force it and again the, to what i was saying earlier about we need to have a full generational change i don't know that the generation that first recognized the need is the generation that will be able to live the change. Right. If that makes sense.
0: It does. It does. Um, And at the same time, it would also be just an extraordinary break. I mean, what we're talking about are sort of two iterations of um, the church borrowing significantly in her sort of approach to questions about governance and self-understanding from the prevailing sort of motifs of the time. See that if the second Vatican council or see that first Vatican council. And then you see that in this, I'm not sure if in the text, I'd have to think about that more, but um, you certainly see that in the sort of post-conciliar period of the second Vatican council where the church sort of borrows from the prevailing motifs of the time. Um, so you, yeah, Vatican one takes place in the age of empires, Vatican two, the post-conciliar period takes place in what could be called the age of the United nations. And, um, and, uh, and those things impact the life of the church in dramatic ways. It would be a break. It would be a break from that thing, which I think is customary in the life of the church over centuries um, for her to say, well, maybe this period of sort of broad institutional distrust and disaffiliation is an easier time for us to be who we are instead of to be the prevailing thing, which, you know, the prevailing cultural thing. But I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if that's going to happen, and I don't know if we can even say what's going to be the sort of next prevailing social institution either, right? Because oh. I do think there was a way in which chanceries in this country, and maybe the conference and other ecclesiastical institutions in this country, have borrowed heavily over the last fifteen or twenty years from the language of Silicon Valley. Oh yeah, language of innovation, capital, and these kinds of things, and and uh, and, and a lot of things which are sort of talk. A lot of ways in which people sort of talk about ecclesial renewal are uh, uses. Buzzwords and maybe even beyond buzzwords, but certain sort of underlying presumptions from um, the prevailing social institution of our time, the prevailing institution of the last 15 years, which is to say Silicon Valley um, and the tech universe. I don't think that the tech universe is going to be the prevailing social institution of the next 20 years, but I don't think I understand what is. You don't think there's going to be a church of the metaverse, JD? (laughs) No, because I think the metaverse is a stupid, gimmicky thing, right? I don't know what's.
1: I guarantee you there will be a bishop of the metaverse. we will a, get a they, some someone will want to build a meta cathedral and have you know
0: make it their special ministry and God well, help that'll, me that'll be dumb right um, we'll be dumb is, that I think is a, a sort of metaverse thing is a kind of gimmicky tech thing that's stupid um, uh, um, I don't know what the real prevailing social institution in the West will be over the next twenty years and I I don't know um, if it's if it's clear yet um, but I do know that you know the church will either um lean into um those things which are uh sort of the prevailing social ethos and mores of the world or perhaps have a moment in which she can say more concretely that she wishes to be who she is and that would be a, a sincere sign of contradiction to the life of the world which would be nice what do you think the prevailing social institutions are uh huh. yeah right
1: Well, I was, yeah. I mean, it ain't going to be, it's not going to be baseball. No, it's not going to be
0: baseball. The Lockout.
1: It's not going to be baseball. It's not going to be democracy. It's not going to be schools or the family or...
0: There are, for a certain swath... uh,
1: Honest to God, I wonder if the metaverse isn't going to be for the prevailing social institution (laughs) of the next 20 years. Because think about it. Does it not represent exactly what the prevailing social trend is right now,
0: Towards which is it's a totally
1: make-believe adaptation. world where everyone yeah. is actually isolated and mm-hmm. totally yeah. self-defining. I yeah. I can't think of a better metaphor for the world our society would like to create right now than a stupid Mark Zuckerberg video
0: game. I mean, I, that, is the, that is the world we deserve. I mean, to a certain swath of Americans, it seems obvious that um, public health authorities will remain the sort of most significant or will become even more the most sort of significant um, uh, 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 I don't want to say dictators, but determinants of of um, uh, of of cultural decision making. But to another swath of Americans, public health authorities are among the most reviled and and, you know, in, incredible, non-credible figures there are. So um, less, you know, unless we're well, unless we just should anticipate more fractionalization, if there will be a sort of unifying social institution, I don't know what it is.
1: I, I have no idea what it will be.
0: Yeah, I wish it was baseball. Yeah, it won't be, it won't be no. Okay. Um, we're going to do one other thing, but before we do that, I just want to take about uh, one second to say, um, I have been edified over the past couple of weeks. I have been in numerous conversations over the past couple of weeks where I've run into people who uh, tell me that they listen to the show and how much they like the show and how much the pillar podcast is a part of their week. And I'm just really edified and encouraged by that this second year of the pillar project, um, which is more than Ed and I, we have, um, you know, Michelle LaRosa works with us, who does phenomenal work, and we have a number of freelancers and, and other people who are working with us on a regular basis. But this second year for the Pillar project um, is, a, is an important year. Maybe I think we probably had a bit of a honeymoon in the first year. We're, do, we're new, we're doing a new thing. Hey, these guys are doing a new thing, and it's cool, and let's check it out. Um, but this second year is the year in which we need to have both continuity and growth. So please, Pillar podcast listeners, um, share the podcast with your friends, rate it on um, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts, um, sh- read the site, sign up for the newsletter. if you don't ar- There are newsletters if you don't already get it, the pillar post, um, share those with your friends. We just, um, a big part of this year for us to be able to continue doing this project is just um, bringing what we do to a broader audience. And, um, and I think there are more people who, who would like the show. I think there are more people who would like what we do at pillarcatholic.com and um, you guys are our best um, uh, uh, help us podcast listeners you're our only hope no you're not our only That's I, best hope it's true and so uh, the more you can uh, the more you can help us in this next year because I think this year Ed will get a real sense without the sort of honeymoon effect being a new thing of uh, the viabil- viability of this project yeah I mean the year one was all about survival can
1: we make the seed Germany can we, can we get yeah. yeah and but this is the I mean <laughs> this is the year where we find out whether, you know, we can actually get some roots in and. And we have make... lots of things. Sorry, go on. No, I mean, that, that was it. That You know, yeah. Year one was all about survival and novelty and the year two is all about, okay, is this actually, um, is there a sustainable path to growth here?
0: Yeah. So and, like the show, rate the show, um, review the show, share the show, share the site. I would say subscribe, but I genuinely believe that people who listen to, the Pillar Podcast. Most of them are subscribers, if they can be. Um, if you're not and you can subscribe, that makes us able to do this thing that we think you appreciate us doing. Actually, can I? Yeah. Um, on that, we
1: said a couple of months ago that if everyone who was a subscriber, if, if everyone who was a weekly listener to the Pillar Podcast was a subscriber to the Pillar, or if those numbers were equal, um, we could we could end the year happy men, and we more or less got there. We're
0: getting there. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. There. yeah,
1: so I wanted to say thank you, everyone. Yeah, yeah really you know, the you. fact that we have a year two is down to basically our our core group of supporters, which is the people who listen it's to true. this thing every week and read our stuff and subscribe. That's that's the reason why we get a year two, is because of you. And thank you.
0: We think it is important because I sincerely like paying my bills. I yeah, really thank, do. Thank, thank you. Thank you, for you that. thank you. And I sincerely like being able to do this in an independent way that is um yeah. that is listener and reader supported, that does not You know, um, I see other Catholic media apostles that have to do a lot of things uh, for money. And um, and uh, some of them very undignified, some of them. (laughs) And I would not I do not want to be in that position. And we're not in that position because I think we're reader and we we have reader and listener support that is unparalleled. And um, absolutely. When we we do undignified uh, things, it's for our own amusement and for for no other reason. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. (laughs) and with all that said, which the central message of is thank you. um, Would you like to play a game? I would love to. Okay. Um, 1962 is the year that the Second Vatican Council began, you might recall me saying, um, during the course of this conversation. You've made mention. I have, I, I believe, made mention. But um, that's not the only thing that happened in 1962, as you probably imagine. There were other things that happened sure. in um, in the year 1962. And so we're going to play a little bit of, um, if you will, 1962, yes or no. Oh yes, please. Okay. The first one is somewhat tragic, but in 1962 at two of the seven flying Walendas um, died in a, uh, in a, in a, in um, a, in an accident. Um, uh, their pyramid collapsed. Um, the flying Wilendas were an acrobatic act. Um, and during a performance in um, Detroit, their pyramid collapsed and two of the seven flying Wilendas collapsed. And really they have not been the same first. Um are you all- asking
1: me to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down on
0: the tragic accidental death of two people? No, that's just what links them to 1962. Oh, okay. I thought you asked me to go yes or no on that. <laughs> what I'm asking you to go yes or no on, sir, is the flying will end us. Oh, no. Really? No. Oh. I don't
1: like. I, look, I don't deal with acrobatic circus performance. As far as I'm concerned, they are one step above Carney's uh, and they have slightly better, you know, outfits. I, it's not my thing. I don't like it. It's the. You know how some people feel about clowns and mimes and stuff. Yes. I also feel that way about clowns and minds, but also anyone in a sparkly leotard, basically. Well, like okay. any, any sort of weird, over-the-top, physical, it just makes me uncut. Like musical theater, I don't like. Like my nightmare yeah, is cats. I know.
0: I've never understood why you don't like musical theater. My <laughs>
1: nightmare is cats. People yeah. in weird costumes, singing, dancing, juggling. I could, the whole thing is just like, I don't. It, I find it unsettling. I don't like it.
0: Well, speaking of performative people in weird costumes, I want to be clear. I'm not saying they're bad people. It's
1: not a moral failing on anyone's part. It's just not to my taste.
0: Um, using their free-flowing uh, sort of exhibitionist and performative style of play, the Ginka style of play, if you will, Brazil won the World Cup in 1962. Ed, so my question for you is Brazilian football, yes or no? Oh, yes. All right. Okay. Yeah. Great. Uh, do you know where the World Cup was in
1: 1962? Um. Let's see. Well, I mean, it was in... England in 66. I feel like it was in Uruguay the time before 62.
0: Uh, was it, in fact, in Brazil in 62? No, I was in Chile, but it doesn't matter. Oh, Okay. Um, tragically, Ed, meeting her demise in 1962 was a pin-up girl and frequent White House visitor Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe, yes or no? Uh,
1: uh, I mean, you got to say yes, just as... American cultural icon, albeit a tragic one. All right. Okay. Um, it would be difficult to imagine um, the America of the 20th century without Marilyn Monroe.
0: Okay. Speaking of American cultural icons, George, Leroy, Astro. The, the Jetsons. Guys, the Jetsons premiered in 1962. Jane, his wife, daughter, Judy. His boy, Elroy. This boy, El Roy, Rosie was the robot. Uh, the Jetsons premiered in 1962, ed- ushering in really the Jet Age and the Space Age for America. The Jetsons, yes or no?
1: No, I was never a fan.
0: It was uh, the thing is, even as a child, to me, the Jetsons seemed like dystopia. Oh, interesting. Well, because well, they they couldn't go anywhere. They were always yeah, they, they were always stuck in their bubble. Yeah, it, mm-hmm.
1: everything was inside. It was like the you were. It was like
0: being never-endingly in the mall. Just, sometimes uh, sometimes Mr. Um, Sprocket came over to yell at him, but didn't Astro have a jetpack? Yeah, but Astro also had to be walked on a treadmill. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: isn't that sad? <laughs> yeah, Poor Astro. I say poor Astro, but I don't even walk my dog on a treadmill. So I guess Astro is better off than that. But okay. Yeah, I know. I could see that. I could see that. All right. Um, Dr. No, Ed, the very first Bond film prom- premiered at the London Pavilion in 1962. Dr. No, yes or no? Hard yes. Sean Connery as James Bond, yes or no? Sean Connery as James Bond, yes. Second best Bond. Who is the
1: first? I honestly, controversially,
0: you're going to say Pierce Brosnan.
1: No, Daniel Craig. I think Daniel Craig has actually given at he has not had the best scripts to work with at all times. I think there are only of the five Daniel Craig films, I think only two of them were good.
0: Um, That's enough for him to be
1: best. Well, no, he just gave the best. He gave the he
0: gave the performance of Bond that was closest to the characters written by Ian Fleming. Okay, um, Ed. The um, in 1962, the Mona Lisa toured the United States. It was interesting that there was a giant figure. It was like 10 million dollars or something like that, quoted to insure the Mona Lisa during her U.S. tour. And the Louvre decided, rather than spend that money on insurance premiums, decided to spend that money on security for the Mona Lisa. So the Mona Lisa secured toured the U.S. with some of the best security that a painting touring the United States had ever had. Um, my question for you, Ed, is Mona Lisa? Yes or no? No. Yeah. What's yeah. she looking so smug about? Right. Yep. No. Yep. Yep. I can dig it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And I've I've funny. seen the Mona Lisa. I went I've been to the Louvre. I've yeah. looked at the
0: paint. I I was underwhelmed. I don't understand what the fuss is about. I don't understand. The fuss is the the, the, the She's real no Mona Marilyn room. Monroe. The, the Tell you the that if it's like the real Mona Lisa is the line we waited along the way because you know, it's crazy how how many people go to the Louvre, stand in an extraordinarily long line to look at the Mona Lisa and then leave the Louvre instead of looking at the rest yeah. of the cool stuff. To right. look
1: at an under, utterly underwhelming yeah painting right. and first of all the louvre is the louvre is a tourist trap if you're going to paris go to the musée d'orsay mm-hmm. way better way better art
0: way better okay the louvre is for tourists yeah and, and i don't like the architecture also yeah okay um ed in 1962 the u.s began its longest running trade embargo with the nation of cuba just 90 miles to our um, south uh the u.s trade embargo with cuba ed yes or no
1: no um and, and my my entire understanding no kick here i know my entire understanding of the the fallout of the cuban revolution and the embargo and everything else comes from watching the godfather part two and they looked <laughs> like they're having a really great time before all that yeah, communism I was and so trade embargo. The
0: down there with uh, yeah I, uh-huh. it
1: looked like cuba was looked like the kind of place i would have liked to have hang, hung out um, right yeah. prior to all that stuff going down so yeah. no uh, anti-embargo yeah.
0: no yeah me too with the exception of the fact that the embargo has created like the ingenuity of the Cuban people to keep cars running, and that is true. All kinds of, like you know, homegrown solutions to things. You hate that the Cubans are suffering, but you can't help but admire the, the their ingenuity in that suffering.
1: But the thing mm-hmm. is, all of those cars, like they they can sell them
0: to oh, Americans sure. yeah. for the, hundreds oh, of thousands oh, of dollars. Yeah, hundreds of thousands, no doubt. I think you're absolutely like right. Like there's right. there somewhere, yeah. I, I think there's some. Oh, like, in fact, you have to believe that Jay Leno already owns several yeah. sort of Cuban homegrowns in his in his uh, in yeah
1: his like they, I, I guarantee you there are families who have been living in absolute poverty in Havana with you know a, a perfectly operational original 1950s car and yeah. that you know will suddenly get a half a million dollar windfall because somebody will a classic car collector will
0: buy it and and that's good okay here's your last 1962 mm-hmm. yes or no um, after Bobby Richardson caught a line drive that shot toward him at second base in the bottom of the ninth game seven the New York Yankees, defeated the San Francisco Giants to win the 1962 World Series. I actually I don't know if they were the San Francisco Giants then or if they were the they, New York. they were, I think. They had moved to San Francisco already. Yeah. Okay, my question for you Ed is New York Yankees yes or no? Uh
1: okay. Um I mean in general no, but because first of all the American League is not real baseball, anything with the DH, but they didn't have the DH at that point, so there's that. Also, uh, the Yankees always get a thumbs up over the Giants or the Dodgers because teams that move cities are, you know, a bunch of carpet bagging, money chasing, pathetic, you know, McDonald's franchises. I
0: love how you're like, well, you know, those Cubans can sell those amazing cars that they've been maintaining in their family for generations through, you know, hard work and extraordinary ingenuity. But teams of uh, of of well played athletes who move from one city to another are evil. Not evil. They're just soulless. And I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Cuba has some great baseball, by the way. Cuba oh, base- has phenomenal baseball. Do you have a Cuban baseball team that you are particularly interested in? You know, believe it or not, I do not. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Cienfuego Elefantes. There you go. Uh, much as I'm glad to hear about that, I do not know that I got a full and complete answer from you, which is really yes, one word answer, yes or no. In the
1: I mean, context of, your, of the scenario you set, New York Yankees, yes or no, yes,
0: because they're playing the Giants. Ed Condon, Yankees fan. Ah, well, i is a production of Pillar Media and Ed NJD production. I'm your host and pillar editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by Ed the Pinstripes Condon. We'll see you next week.